0: Good morning. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that's found on page 456. I am very thankful to have the opportunity to, uh, once again, share with you from God's Word. And as we prepare to read it, uh, I would ask you to pray with me. Lord God, we know that your Word tells us that Unless you build the house, the laborers work in vain. And so we pray using the last words of this psalm saying, let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Psalm 19 as a psalm is intended originally to be sung And so, as you should do any time you read a psalm, you should ask yourself the question, as I read this aloud, what effect would this have if we stood together as a congregation and sang these words? How would it make me think about myself? How would it make me think about my neighbor standing next to me? And most importantly, how would it make me think about my God? Psalm 19 begins with this inscription. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. And there is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their words go out through all the all the earth and their voice to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom from his chamber. And like a strong man rejoices to run his course. It's rising is from the end of the heavens and it's setting to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, also sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them is great reward. Who can discern his errors, forgive, declare me innocent from, Hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. A few weeks ago, my wife Chris and I had an opportunity to travel with the high school graduates from this church on their mission trip to Costa Rica. And one day while we were there, we got to go to the ocean. And as it happens, I was riding in a vehicle with a young woman who had never seen the ocean before. And as we drew near, one of her friends uh, glimpsed it out the window and pointed it out to her. And the next thing I heard was just this sobbing from the back seat. And I turned around to see what was the matter. And there she was with a big smile on her face and tears streaming down. You see, the revelation of so much magnificence, so much grandeur, so much beauty and power led to the only response possible, tears of joy. And it was a great response to a very big thing. But what about small things? A few years ago, I was walking my dog in my neighborhood and I happened to pass a tree that I had probably seen hundreds of times before. I grew up there. But this time, I bothered to notice that the trunk of this tree was covered, just completely covered, with these scaly lichens, greens and oranges and grays. And I drew closer to it, and I realized, man, these things are a lot more interesting than I ever realized. And one thing led to another, and I started to do some reading. And did you know that lichens are not a solitary organism, but they are a cooperation between algae and a fungus And the algae needs the fungus to provide it a home so it doesn't dry out. And the fungus needs the algae to make it food. And together they depend upon each other. And there are dozens of kinds of these things that live all over Douglas County, thousands of them all over the world, that I've probably walked by most days of my life and never noticed. But that day, the revelation of a whole new world led to the response of an enduring curiosity. And now I see these things everywhere I go. These lichens. Our world is a fascinating place. There really shouldn't be enough time in life to see and do and experience all the good things that God has made. Every day we walk by big things that should cause our jaws to drop in awe of our Creator. We walk by small things that if we bothered to see them, they would ignite a sense of wonder in us. And all of that is meant to point us to God. And even though we do have eyes to see and ears to hear, most days we don't see and we don't hear. And so isn't it good that we have Psalm 19, God's word, to remind us that God's revelation requires our response. So how does God reveal himself to us? Well, the psalmist tells us that he does this through his works And through his word and the first six verses address how he reveals himself in his works. Verse one says the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. They declare his glory. They rehearse it. They recount it. This is not a glory that they have in and of themselves as though they were somehow celestial beings. But this is a reflected glory, a glory that they get by being created by God. The very words of this verse should remind us of the first verse in the Bible where God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. The word heavens, the word here for sky, which is sometimes translated as expanse or firmament, and even the word in Hebrew that's used for God all relate to that passage. Where God made everything, and those heavens proclaim his handiwork. They say, God made this. So God reveals himself in his works through everything. But the psalmist goes on, verse 2, and he says, Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. It pours out, it gushes forth like an inexhaustible, irrepressible spring of revelation. Revealing the knowledge of God, the very knowledge that's talked about in Psalm 94, verses 10 and 11, where he, he who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. This is true knowledge, knowledge of the Holy One that goes forth unceasing day and night. So God reveals himself through his works in every moment. Verse 3 reads, There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. And here we need to pause and acknowledge that there are two traditions in how to translate this verse from a Hebrew to the English And both traditions are well-supported. But they make a difference into how we interpret this verse, and they affect the meaning. One tradition says that it should be translated something like this. There is no speech, there are no words, their voice is not heard. And the meaning would be, the heavens do indeed reveal God's glory, but they do so without actually speaking. And this is the tradition followed by the current NIV Bible, the NASB, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the RSV. And then there's the other tradition, the one from which I read, that says the meaning of this verse really should be everyone on earth hears the revelation of God's glory. There's no one, nowhere on earth who doesn't hear. It gets to all of us. And this tradition is supported by the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, by Martin Luther, by John Calvin, by the King James Version, and the ESV. But it's not a, it's not a competition. You're not supposed to pick your favorite brand. You need good reasons when it comes to translation for choosing one over the other, not just because you like it better. And so here are a couple of good reasons why I think that's the better way to translate this verse. The first is that it requires less modification to get from Hebrew to English. The second, which I think is even better, is that it fits the context of verse 4, which says, their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So if we read it that way, there is no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard, then God's revelation through his works, goes forth to everyone. And we turn to verse 4. The voice goes out like a measuring line is, is the language used here. It's God's measuring line to mark out his dominion, to say, everything I've made here is mine. In all the earth, language reminiscent of the heavens and the earth, their words go out to the end of the world, the very, the very ends of the world. This is, this is not meant to give us a picture of a flat disc with an edge on it. That's not at all what the psalmist had in mind. It's meant everywhere, a sense of completeness. There's not anywhere that this revelation doesn't reach. verse goes on says, In them he has set a tent for the sun. So now he focuses in on just this one thing that all people on earth can see, the sun. And comes back every day like a bridegroom leaving his chamber with such, such joy on his wedding day. So radiant is he. And I want to caution you here. You hear the word bridegroom, and some of you are going to say, well, a bridegroom? Isn't Christ called the bridegroom in Scripture? Hey, the son's like Christ. You know, the early church fathers actually went that way, and Augustine among them, uh, and he and the others changed the sun into Jesus and the stars into the apostles and the voice going forth into the gospel. And they, they read all kinds of allegory into this psalm. And, and the reason you shouldn't do that in this psalm is that the psalmist makes a big point that the sun is not God, but it is a created thing that is obedient to God. And that the glory that we see in the sun is merely a fraction of God's glory. It points to him. And that the sun, like a mighty man, like a strong man or a champion, rejoices to run its course, the path that it has across the sky. It rises from one end of the heavens and its circuit is to the other end. And there is absolutely nothing hidden from its heat. So the effect of these verses 4, 5, and 6 is to say that the God's revelation goes out everywhere. So in the first six verses of this psalm, God reveals himself through his works, through everything, in every moment, to everyone, everywhere. And if this is true, why is it everyone doesn't hear and believe? Keep your place there in Psalm 19, and I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans, the first chapter of Romans. The Apostle Paul offers an explanation as to why it is that people can hear and see God's revelation in creation and still not believe in God. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. It reads, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. We suppress the truth. It's kind of a hard word. You know, it's the same message that God called Isaiah to preach. He said, go and tell them, be ever hearing, but never understanding, ever seeing, but never perceiving. And we know that this is the effect that sin has in our world. It blinds us. It deafens us to reality. And So what about us? What about those of us sitting in this room today? Do we hear the message and do we see the revelation of God's glory in his creation? psalm 19 is not about nature it's about how god reveals himself through his works and word to a world that has rejected him that has suppressed the truth well for us sometimes we're too busy to hear we're caught up in our own lives like students in school or people in church we maintain good eye contact but our minds may be somewhere else. We could walk through nature and just not even notice it. What glories are we missing on a daily basis? What blessing do we forfeit by our distraction? Our modern conveniences, air conditioning, roof over our heads, They insulate us and they isolate us from nature. So we spend less and less time outdoors. So much so that it's caused the invention of expressions that are absolutely new in the course of human history. Like, I'm not an outdoor person. Let's go to the outdoor store. Some people out there, they do feel the sense of awe and wonder. But they confuse the sign for the sign giver. They worship the created things rather than the creator. You know, A preacher once said, this is like if you said to your family, I'm going to take you all to Disney World. And so you get everybody in the car, and you drive all the miles down there to Florida, to Disney World. But right before you get there, there's a sign that says, 30 miles to Disney World. And so you park the car, and you get everybody out, and you say, all right, kids, we're here. That wouldn't be a very fun trip at all. But sometimes we stop with the sign instead of going on to the sign giver. And you hear this in different ways. People will say things like, well, my church is outdoors. That's where I feel closest to God or I don't really need to go to a church. I worship God in nature. Maybe. Maybe you do. And of course there are people all over the world that, that see the glory and ascribe it to other gods in other religions. Or to no God at all. Maybe just my mention of the word creation today causes you some anxiety and Who would blame you? Because in the year 2017, this word has been co-opted for all sorts of social and political and environmental debates. We use it in evil ways to cause division. We use it as a club to divide between smart people and dumb people and good people and bad people and people with a fish and people with fish with legs and people with a fish with legs eating their fish on the back of their car. Man, if only our cars could talk to each other. (laughs) I point out there's a difference between being right and being rude. It's absolutely essential that we believe the scriptures and believe that God created all things and sustains all things and that he is redeeming all things for the new heavens and the new earth that we look forward to. But when the Bible talks about creation... It always uses it as a way to drive us to worship. There's not a single incidence that you can find in the Bible where it talks about the way God has made the world, where it's not meant to turn our hearts to worship him. The heavens declare the glory of God, and so should we. But the truth is that even if we could clearly see and clearly hear the revelation in God's works, it wouldn't be enough. We need his word. And so the psalmist, knowing this, goes on in verses 7 through 11, and he he takes up the theme of God's word like a beautiful jewel. And he picks it up and he turns it around and he says, oh, it's beautiful from this angle, but look at it from this facet and this one and this one. And he just revels in its glory. He starts here saying God reveals himself through his word, starting in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul this word law is Torah. It means the rules plus the promises of God The word for Lord here in all caps always means the Hebrew word for Yahweh that special covenant name that God revealed to his people Israel And this law it is perfect. It is spotless blameless absolutely well-meaning and the effect it has on us is reviving restoring refreshing just as it's meant in psalm 23 where it says the lord is my shepherd he restores my soul psalmist goes on and says the testimony of the lord using a slightly different word for god's word, uh, word for god's word he says the testimony of the lord is sure making wise the simple This word for testimony is the one that's used to describe the Ark of the Covenant and the tablets that God made. It means warning, but also instruction. This testimony is sure. It is made firm. It is faithful. It is, in the words of our hymn, solid ground. All other ground is sinking sand. It is able to make us wise unto salvation, Paul says, 2 Timothy 3.15. It is meant for those... Like you and me who are simple and sometimes easily led astray. It is a solid footing in an uncertain world. He goes on, he says, the precepts of the Lord in verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. This word precepts declares the concerns and obligations we have to God. It's the same word that's used over and over again in Psalm 119 that praises the word of the Lord. It's related to the blessing of the one who meditates on God's law day and night in Psalm 1, whose life prospers. What does it mean that they are right? It means that before God's face, this is how things should be. This is what it should look like. They're they're right. And they bring joy to the heart, to the inmost being. What do you need to be happy? What would it mean to you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are right, that you are walking in God's will? We run after so many things, you and me. And yet, the Bible tells us that sin only leads to sorrow. But here's the promise that living according to God's precepts leads to joy. Second half of the verse says, The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. This is the same word that's used for the Ten Commandments. And and they're pure in the sense that in Psalm 24, we ask the question, Who can ascend the hill of the Lord and who can stand in his holy presence? The one who is pure in heart hey, I want that. How can I have that? Well, here it is. Live according to God's commandments. They enlighten our eyes, not just our intellect, but our body, soul, our whole being is enlightened and refreshed. This is the same word for light that we find in Genesis 1, where God said, let there be light. And light shone in the darkness. This is the sort of light that God shines in our world. It says so in Proverbs 6.23. The commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. And of course, the verse that's familiar to most of us, Psalm 119.105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It shows us the way in which we should live. Verse 9 psalmist turns the beautiful jewel of god's word one more time and says the fear of the lord is clean enduring forever this word for fear here means the holy reverence that we're to have for god the the respect the piety if you will the true religion that we're supposed to live out as his followers it involves how we worship both as individuals and corporately and the psalmist says this fear it's clean it's morally and ethically pure Which immediately begs the question, are we clean? And we know we're not, right? It's why we have the time of confession in the worship service. We confess with Isaiah saying, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. But this, this fear, the psalmist says, which is clean, it endures forever. It will never cease. We're promised the same thing by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 40 of the word of God. He says, all men are like grass and their glories are like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. And you know, this means that the law of the Lord will never cease to be perfect. That his testimony will never cease to be sure. That his precepts will never cease to be right. His commandment will never cease to be pure. The fear of the Lord will never cease to be a clean thing. And finally, the rules of the Lord will never cease to be true and altogether righteous. These rules of God, his judgments, they are self-verifying. They prove themselves true and trustworthy and faithful. And they're righteous altogether. There's not a spot of God hedging his bets and allowing a little injustice to slip by. God, who is described as incredibly merciful, will by no means clear the guilty. And the psalmist says of all of this, the word of God, that it's more to be desired than gold. And it's sweeter than honey, he says in verse 10. It has a value on the outside, like the most valuable thing we might run after in this world. The most valuable possession we could have, even fine gold. And it has a value on the inside that's sweet to our soul, sweeter than honey. So what do we want? What do you truly long for? What is it that you are passionately pursuing in your life that you're devoted to? What is it that you're trying to attain What do you really value? What do you fear losing? And for what thing would you be willing to forsake all else? Proverbs 3 tells us that the wisdom of God, His Word, it's more precious than silver, it's more costly than gold, it's more beautiful than diamonds, and that nothing we desire... Compares to it. There are shelves filled with self-help books. And all sorts of things we run after in our life to try to make us happy. And right here in the midst of Psalm 19, the psalmist says, this is what it is. This is what leads to a life of happiness and satisfaction. The riches of God's word. We even sang this in, uh, in the hymn today, Here is Love. The words, thou alone shall be my glory, nothing in this world I see. The word world in this context means the corrupt world that draws us away from God, not God's beautiful creation that reveals him. Thou alone shall be my glory. Do we live alone for God's glory? Verse 11 gives us more reasons to love the word of God. That says, moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them is great reward. We're warned, we're instructed in how then to live. John Calvin says, God doesn't owe us a thing for keeping his word. It's what we we're supposed to do anyway. But he's so gracious, Calvin says, his, his liberality is so great in his love that he decides to reward us in a way that justice doesn't require. Even unto eternal life. So up to this point in the psalm, in the first 11 verses, the psalmist lays it out. He says, God reveals himself in his works and he reveals himself in his word. But we know that God's revelation requires our response. And so here in the last three verses, he lays out what that should look like. How should we respond? He says, in repentance and in righteousness. First verse 12, who can discern his errors, declare me innocent from hidden faults. You know, the Bible tells us that the heart, the human heart is unfathomable, that, that it's deceitful, that, that sin is so subtle from our own experience, we know this, that it just sneaks in everywhere. That I might even think, perhaps in the time of confession, that, that I've actually remembered all of the sins in my life, but probably not. We're probably aware of the fact that there's stuff that we can't even think of in there, that we've, that we've done wrong, that we've failed to do, Ways that we are not living in accord with God's word. The psalmist says, there's nothing for it but for you to declare me innocent. There's no set of tasks I can do to make this right. There's nothing I can do to make it up to you, Lord. You're going to have to declare me innocent. So he prays a prayer of justification to be made right before God. From his hidden faults. Well, who are these faults hidden from? I think we can do a pretty good job of deceiving ourselves. We can deceive others. We can never deceive the Lord. He sees everything. He knows everything. Every dark recess of my soul. The words that I say when I'm alone and I think no one hears. The thoughts that I have that never come out as words. He knows all of it. Lord, declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, presumptuous ones, arrogant, intentional, flagrant sins. Let them not have dominion over me. And you may say, wait a minute. How is it possible if I am Christ's that I could then be enslaved to sin? Hasn't God freed me from all of that? The New Testament's pretty clear about this. It says, what then? Should we go on sinning that grace may increase? It says, by no means, right? We should never take the grace of God for granted because the way sin works is this way. We start with presumptuous sins and when they're repeated, they become dominant in our life and can enslave us. They can make it harder and harder for us to live the right response to God's revelation, which is repentance. So we need God's help. The psalmist recognizes this. He says, keep me from these sins. Jesus says for us to pray it this way. He says, lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil. It is a prayer for sanctification. A prayer to be made holy. To be enabled to walk a holy and obedient life. Then, the psalmist says, then I will be innocent and blameless of great transgression. So God's revelation requires the response of repentance, but it also, we see here in the very last verse, requires the response of righteousness. The psalmist says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. My words, like the words of the heavens that go out to the ends of the world. My mouth, whose chief end is to glorify and enjoy you, Lord. My meditation, which might be hidden from others, but not from you, Lord. Your word penetrates and it exposes like the heat of the sun from which nothing is hidden. My heart, which rejoices at your precepts, like the obedient sun rejoices to run its course. Let it all be acceptable in your sight before your face, just like a sacrifice that I might offer to you, Lord. But how can I ever be acceptable to God? Lord, you must make me acceptable. You must declare me innocent from my hidden faults. You must keep me from sin. And he ends with these words. He says, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, rock, which makes us think of the words of Moses in Deuteronomy thirty two, four He is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. And Redeemer, Job nineteen, twenty-five. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And here, in the last words of this psalm, it points forward. Because we know that the redemption is not yet complete. And it makes us think of our Redeemer, even Jesus. The one for whom it is written, for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. Second Corinthians 5.21 He redeems us. He restores us. He makes us righteous, even to shine like the sun. He makes us into his ambassadors. And it is here that we see what our hearts really long for, the message of the gospel, that God reveals himself, sure, through his works, but it was not really enough. And so he gave us his word, and yet still not quite enough in the long term of God's plan. And so the word became flesh and dwelt among us, even Jesus Christ, and revealed to us. And we saw his glory as human beings. And yet he lived a righteous life. He died the death for our sins. He rose again from the dead so that we could have new life. But then he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father. None of us in this room have ever seen Jesus face to face. He's at the right hand of God the Father. How is it possible that we're here for church today? Because God did something marvelous. He sent the Holy Spirit. And the generations since Jesus ascended until now, since the day of Pentecost until now, have responded to his revelation in repentance and righteousness And lived holy lives and passed on the message of the gospel so that we might hear. And so we are here today to call upon the name of Jesus because he revealed himself through those ambassadors through all that time. And you say, well, that's pretty fantastic. And it gets better. He can take people like you and me and actually make us part of that plan as his church goes forward. His word never goes out and returns void. His word goes into all the ends of the world and declares his glory. And we are now part of that. We, uh, we read in the assurance of pardon that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fell short of our mission of declaring God's glory. But we are justified. We are declared righteous in Christ as a free gift by his grace through his redemption. And the best part, he saves for the end. The promise that that last word, Redeemer, points to. Because we know that someday, Jesus will return. And on that day, he will return in the clouds, the very clouds that proclaim his handiwork, that declare his glory. And he will return in glory. And in that day, every One will see, and everyone will hear, and every knee will bow. And we will rejoice, because purer and higher and greater will be our wonder and our transport when Jesus we see. Will you pray with me? Lord God, you have revealed yourself to us. Through your words and through your works, Lord, even more, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, even Jesus, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, you've graciously given us the gift of faith, and help us to walk in repentance and in righteousness, to be good ambassadors of Christ. Until we see you face to face, we pray, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer.